This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I'd like to welcome everybody to this evening's Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the director, Margaret Lenin, to um, facilitate our wonderful event this evening. Thank you, Harry. In 1992, countries around the world joined in a new treaty, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Some of the most important information that went into the rationale for having a treaty among the nations of the world on climate change originated here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And most of you are familiar with that. In fact, you uh, just heard an announcement uh, about lectures uh, in honor of Charles David Keeling, whose work on CO2 demonstrated the impact that we have as a result of our carbon emissions on the atmosphere, and others talked about how those emissions went together to result in climate change. So some of the rationale for this entire field of study and the entire UN agreement originated right here at Scripps. The operating mechanism for international discussion around this treaty uh, is called the Conference of the Parties, the COP. And so every year since 1995, the first COP was in Berlin, nations have joined together to negotiate agreements associated with this framework, this treaty on climate change. In 1997, two years after the the meetings began, uh, the international community negotiated what was called the Kyoto Protocol. It was the first agreement on climate change. And that agreement was based on the principle of what's called differentiation, which is that the nations that had historically been responsible for most of the the, uh, greenhouse gas emissions would be responsible for dealing with most of the the uh, economics and the action on climate change. The U.S. never signed the protocol, and even with the good faith efforts of many nations, uh, we soon found out that the growing and developing world was already having such an impact and was growing so much that we couldn't reach good action on climate change, and we couldn't start bending the curve to reduce emissions unless everybody participated. And so it was back to the drawing boards on climate. And starting with that time, there were new efforts to frame a new agreement. Um, But the history of COP meetings since then has been a history of foundered agreements and disappointments especially in 2009 at COP15 in Copenhagen, where we all hoped that we were going to reach what was called the global deal in which we would come to a new agreement. That meeting ended in great frustration. That was my third COP. Uh, And I've never experienced uh, just a global international uh, group of people that were so frustrated so disappointed and, and couldn't come to agreement. In fact, at the very end, uh, the meeting foundered itself and, and many people walked out. Between that time and this, so much work has been engaged in trying to find a way forward. And what you're going to hear about tonight is some of the pieces that forged the way forward from what I think was the the low point in everybody's understanding of climate change agreements to that December 12th Paris Agreement in which 196 countries ratified their desire to move forward together with everybody contributing to 
uh, re- reduction in emissions and other actions on climate. Scripps researchers and students participated in that meeting. Students have been participating since 2001, uh, and we have worked for many years toward getting this agreement. Uh, several things that have happened since COP15, as I said, uh, were made possible by the role that Scripps took and had. So tonight you're going to hear about some of that. And our first speaker is Ramanathan. Ramanathan is a distinguished professor uh, of oceanography at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He has a long uh, history of distinguished science, many awards for that science. And I'm not going to go into all of those, but to say that, that he was a participant in uh, the Intergovernmental P- Panel on Climate Change. That's the all of the experts, whether they're in science or social science or policy, who come together every five to seven years uh, to give us the basis of knowledge as it currently exists, and that influences these COP negotiations. His scientific work showed us that the small particles of what we call black carbon, of soot, that come from burning biomass and from incomplete combustion, from dirty diesel and other sources, are a very important part of the climate signal in addition to CO2. And for this, he has won many awards in science. But in the last couple of years, he's played other important roles. And here in the UC system, he is the faculty lead for the whole UC system effort uh, for carbon neutrality. The UC wants to become carbon neutral in a very short time. And he has led the faculty of all of the UCs in developing strategies for how to do that that are applicable in many, uh, not only for UCs, but for many organizations. And he's also played an important role in calling the attention of the Vatican to climate change. And that's what he's going to talk to us about tonight. Ram. Margaret, uh, thank you so much for that generous uh, introduction. I'm really delighted and honored to be here. Uh, Needless to say, uh, uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography and UCSD and the UC system has had an enormous impact on uh, the whole COP process, the UNFCC framework uh, negotiations. Of course, our David Keeling CO2 curve is the foundation on which most of the agreements are built upon. I also want to thank the donors who supported us uh, generously. Uh, I want to mention to you uh, my own small role in 1998, uh, as a Scripps uh, delegate, I went to the COP uh, maybe four or five, in Bonn. So there, uh, I, we proposed, it was a session organized by Scripps, and uh, myself and Paul Crutzen and Nobel Laureate, at that time member of UCSD, and several of us proposed that we should include, in addition to CO2, the other pollutants are also causing global warming. Black carbon is one of them, methane, uh, fluorocarbons, I'm pleased to say, after about 20 years of knocking on the doors, uh, uh, two weeks ago, the UNFCC released a statement and emphasizing they should include these non-CO2 pollutants in the negotiations. Uh, It's a huge, huge uh, victory for science because these pollutants could quickly bring down climate change. Uh, I, I attended this COP21 uh, the first week as I was Scripps uh, UC scientist, and then I s- switched on my hat the second week as a delegate of the Holy See delegation. And, uh, you know, I've been working with the Vatican and with Pope Francis as a council member of the Vatican's Academy of Sciences. <clears throat> and, uh, by the way, uh, it is this academy 
which has invited uh, our presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, for a meeting this Friday. You will hear about this uh, uh, this Thursday, but uh, this whole thing. So I realized the influence of the Vatican, particularly Pope Francis as a moral leader of the world, in persuading public for the sort of drastic actions we need. The Paris Agreement is a huge, huge step forward, but we still don't have the public support for the sort of drastic actions we need. So I was really very happy uh, uh, to be uh, invited by the Vatican to join their delegation. I believe I was the first scientist to be invited to this delegate. And I know when it was announced, I got some uh, comments from the media, particularly LA Times, saying that we hope you don't suffer the same fate as Galileo. <laughs> and uh, so standing there in the middle is Cardinal Turkson. He was the head of the delegation. He was the one who wrote the encyclical. He's from Ghana. To Cardinal uh, Turkson's right-hand side is uh, uh, Archbishop Auza. He is the a permanent representative and ambassador to the UN from the uh, uh, from the Vatican. <clears throat> so he was the deputy lead, and the, so there are many members. I was on the uh, as a science advisor, and I was told by many of my uh, policy leaders, political scientists, that by the time you go to COP21, there is no role for science. It's mainly for negotiations and this. So I was utterly shocked. I fell right in the middle of a major scientific issue. Uh, the front page, if you look at the Paris Agreement in the annex, the first page talks about keeping the planets warming under, uh, well under two degrees. But the, really the phrase they wanted was one and a half. And uh, it's a long report I submitted to them, and where I said the one and a half degrees goal poses formidable scientific as well as technical obstacles. I was really relying on Scripps data. You know, the planets are already warmed by a degree, and Scripps oceanographers have shown, the Argo data set has shown another half a degree is already in the ocean, and the ocean will cough it up in the next 20 years, 30, 40 years. So one and a half is already done deal. So I said we should pose for well under two. So I, in my report, I said the phrase well under two is preferable. And the reason I prepared this report is the Philippines, which headed 45 nations, came to the Vatican, our delegation, and said we wanted to push for one and a half. Not only that, on the following day, Wednesday, when the Pope gives his uh, public speak, they wanted the Pope to tweet one and a half. So Cardinal Turkson came to me. I submitted the report. I wouldn't advise that, that we should go for two degrees, well under two, not one and a half. That same night, after, after we met with the, uh, 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 the Philippine delegation, then I had to meet with the Maldives delegation, which led about 40 small island nations and African nations. They pushed for the same thing. So in this news release, I mean, in this press release, was really... I was surprised how many attended. It's just Pope Francis' effect is what I call. So I talked there about how the poorest three billion who still have not discovered fossil fuels and their contribution to climate change is less than 5%, they would suffer the worst consequences. So somehow that went into big discussion about population and population control, which is not a politically correct word to use. And you can see that uh, that lady there, uh, Apollo, she's the head of the Caritas International. When that question was asked, she tilted to my side and kept me busy with something, and I got distracted. So it turned out, next day, BBC quoted Cardinal Turkson saying, the Vatican cardinal supports population control to keep climate under control. <laughs> of course, that's not what he said. In any case, uh, so we, before I went to this uh, news conference, after I was coming out of the Philippine delegation, I ran into our governor, Jerry Brown, 
And you can see I'm holding the sheet of paper, which was the document I submitted to the Vatican, which was submitted to the uh, president of UNFCC about why the Vatican said we wouldn't support one and a half. So I got very worried. I didn't realize it was going to be such high stakes. So I asked uh, Jerry Brown about this. I said, can you check with our American delegation what their preference is? I just wanted to understand, not that it was going to change my view. He, so we sat there for a coffee and he looked at my document. Ram, this was written for graduate students. Rewrite it. So I had to sit there, rewrite the thing. And then he amazingly took it to Bunky Moon that night. And then Evan, who was his press reporter, called me that night and he said, Bunky Moon says, yeah, he likes your well under two, not one and a half. Anyway, I don't know how much uh, all of this influenced, but the final word which went into the document was well under two degrees. And, uh, and Margaret already talked about this. My next role there was to really talk about how what California is doing and what University of California is doing in terms of becoming carbon neutral could serve as living laboratories for the whole planet. And I mentioned San Diego, too. As you know, our, our Mayor Faulkner has said we will go, our electric power generation will go completely renewable by 2035. I don't know how many of this we are going to accomplish, but still our struggle to get there would be a huge monumental uh, uh, you know, example. So here, you know, under Margaret's uh, uh, you know, uh, support, we held this summit right here. Jerry Brown was there, our president, Janet Napolitano. We released this report, Bending the Curve. So we released 10 solutions. The first solution, of course, with, you know, cut down CO2, there's nothing major, and cut down the short-lived climate pollutants. But what was surprising of this group of engineers, social scientists, natural scientists, and technologists was that we should fundamentally change our behavior. The solution to the problem requires change in attitude and behavior. That was our solutions number two and three. <clears throat> we went on and on and listed 10 solutions. So uh, I had an opportunity to present this at a meeting held by World Health Organization. You can see Margaret Chan. The, uh, the person on the right is, of course, Jeffrey Sachs, economist from Columbia. Next to her is Margaret Chan, uh, the, the Director General for uh, uh, WHO. So I talked about how if these 10 solutions were originating from University of California and California's experience scaled to the world could save about 6 million lives just by cutting air pollution from fossil fuels and burning of biomass. And, and I must say, Margaret Chan was so excited and uh, she or somebody announced in that meeting, sitting behind her, you can't say he's the editor of Lancet. One of them said, if only other universities can join and come up with solutions. So uh, it was really received very positively. The other thing which happened in that summit, this was on, uh, on day two, uh, Bill Gates teamed up with 28 billionaires and announced this breakthrough energy coalition. Of course, he's, he's thinking the whole, it's all technology. Once you have the technology, the problem is solved. I don't know if I subscribe to that, but certainly technology is a key part of it. So I was supposed to have attended this and talked about this uh, bending the curve, but I missed my flight from here to, I didn't miss it. The San Diego flight, which took off to San Francisco, as you know, is always delayed. This time it was delayed by eight hours, so I missed my connection. So I, en I ended up landing there three hours after this meeting was finished, but I joined this group for dinner that night. So I did have a chance to talk about uh, this, what we in UC is doing. Not that Napolitana couldn't do it, she could have done it. But we are part of the UC system is the only university which is part of this breakthrough energy coalition. So this March, uh, no, sorry, uh, in June, there's going to be a ministerial forum. We are trying to organize a panel session uh, with uh, Bill Gates and Janet 
and uh, David doesn't know he's in our invited list, but it's, the session is not finalized yet. Um, I want to conclude with the last thing, which is uh, uh, my personal interest. And anytime I have a gathering like this, I take it apart. I talk quite a bit about this in uh, the Paris summit. You know, I mentioned three billion who have no access to energy. They have not even discovered fossil fuels. So at the University of California, San Diego, through Scripps, we initiated this project to provide clean cook stoves. Okay, you're still using biomass. By the way, the smoke from this stoves, biomass stoves, kills over four million every year. And it produces black carbon, which is the second largest contributor to global warming. So what we did was that in this Vietnam, after seven years, we are ready to go global. So each woman is tied to a bank. She gets a loan from a bank to buy one of the clean stoves. And then my daughter, two of them, Nithya and Tara, our whole family has become cook stove family, Ramanathan. Uh, so they convert the stoves into a smart stove. Hook them, they're both you know, wireless technologists, so they hook them with wireless sensors. That sends the data to UCSD. We convert that into carbon credits. And then we have donors. One of them, this Mac McCone, is on advisory council for Margaret. So he created a climate fund. And then Tara, my daughter, who is in the audience, teamed up with Vodafone. So we send the message to Vodafone. They pay the woman directly using phone, cell phone. So we are converting these women into climate warriors, but it benefits them, right? They can afford, finally, clean technology. The only reason they are using this mud stove and huge deforestation, one and a half billion tons of wood is burned every year, firewood. So this model now has captured the attention of World Bank and others, so we are ready to go global, simply Anyone who wants to offset their fund, start a climate fund, they come to Syria, we'll make a link for them. It could be hundreds of thousands, millions. So, uh, but it was started at Scripps and UCSD. Thank you, Margaret. I want to introduce you to our next speaker, who is David Victor. Uh, David is a professor of international relations in the School of Global Policy and Strategy. GPS. And uh, David has worked in this space of climate science and climate policy for a long time. And of course, we can talk all we want about the science and the rationale and the compelling evidence that we see as science scientists. But converting that to action on the part of governments is a different kind of challenge. And David has specialized in studying very difficult negotiations and very difficult problems and how they can be solved. He has been, for many years, uh, a major author in the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Summary uh, or, or uh, Report for Policymakers, but not on the science side, but on the mitigation side, how do we solve the problem? So he is going to talk to you a little bit about some of the uh, thinking that has gone into this, some of his own thinking, and I hope he's going to tell you a really impressive story about how Paris came to the strategy that they used to succeed where Copenhagen failed. David. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. Um, it's really terrific to be back here. I was here a year or so ago for the Dave Keeling Lecture to talk about the experience that we had with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the process of getting that report approved. And I'm really pleased to be here to talk about what happened in Paris. I don't have any slides. That's the only slide that I have. So I just want to talk. Um, and I feel um, concerned because Ramanathan came up and told you about the Pope and all this cool stuff the Pope and Jerry Brown are doing and I'm going to tell you about politics and the political process so it's inevitable that whatever I say is going to be a disappointment compared to what, uh, to, to what Ram said. 
Um, I want to talk about three things tonight. The first and the most important is I want to talk a little bit about why it is that Paris seemed to work when so many earlier negotiations really failed. I, I, as a graduate student, started going to all of the negotiating sessions that led up to the Framework Convention on Climate Change. They started in the late 1980s, really about 1990. I went to every single one. I went to COP1, which was in Berlin, uh, chaired by their uh, German uh, environment minister at the time, a woman named Angela Merkel, who's in a different job now. I went to COP2, which was in Geneva. And then I stopped going to COPs, because they struck me as a complete and utter waste of time. Because it was, to me as a political scientist, it was obvious that the strategy that they were following was going to fail. It was a strategy that, was in, that, that involved countries getting together and trying to set cent centrally determined commitments to control emissions, and commitments that only applied to part of the world, not the entire world. And yet all countries were involved in the negotiations, which meant that all countries had to consent to what was agreed to. And they were organized around legally binding agreements, which meant that the consent not only uh, was, a, was a consent in concept, but also consent under international law. And it struck me as obvious that that process was going to produce either agreements that looked good on paper but didn't actually require anybody to do anything different from what they would have done otherwise, which was the Kyoto Protocol, or they were going to produce, if we actually tried to get ambitious, they were going to produce deadlock, gridlock. And that's what happened in Copenhagen. Copenhagen, to me, was, uh, it was a depressing experience watching it from afar but it was like a shock to the patient. And the entire patient convulsed as a result of this shock. And people started looking at new ideas. People in the university world started looking at new ideas. And my work over many years had been looking at alternative strategies that looked at other areas of, of international cooperation that had been much more successful, like international trade negotiations, international economic coordination, a variety of other areas. And so with a colleague, uh, Robert Cohane, who's an international relations scholar at Princeton, and I worked on a series of papers, one paper in particular, that laid out the view that international cooperation was going to work in this area if we didn't think about it as a centralized, top-down process, but as a more decentralized and a bottom-up process. And that, in fact, is what we were observing. We were seeing lots of different activities. And so even with gridlock in the formal UN-based negotiations, there were lots of other things going on. And so we did what good academics do, which is we published that in an obscure journal, and then we went on to the, whatever the next paper is that we were working on. When the patient was convulsed after Copenhagen, another really interesting group got very focused on this, which is the group that ultimately led the negotiations in Paris, which is the French foreign ministry and the French, uh, French strategy. The French do not get enough credit for what happened in Paris, because in addition to the fact that they were diplomatically very skilled, the French foreign minister, Fabius, um, hired somebody to, who had read all the literature in this area and went back to the academic literature and developed for the French not only a diplomatic strategy that involved French diplomats on airplanes all the time for 18 months leading up to Paris, but also had a concept of what they were trying to achieve. And as scholars, we always look for ways that our work is relevant. And when the person that Fabius hired to lead and develop this whole concept gave a little talk in Davos this year in Switzerland in January, a few weeks after the end of the Paris conference, she said, you know, we looked to various places for the intellectual guidance as to what we were going to achieve. And, and the first place we looked was this paper that you, David, and Robert Cohane wrote. And I can say as a scholar, that was a really profound experience because you start to see the impact of your work on how people design international institutions that ultimately are, I think, going to be a lot more effective. I think one of the reasons that people are excited about Paris and less excited about most of what's gone before Paris is because the new Paris process is not centralized, integrated, top-down. It is more bottom-up. So in the months, years to some degree, mostly months, uh, leading up to the Paris process, every country, and almost every country on the planet was asked to write down, what are you going to do? And because a simple idea like, what is your pledge, can never be left with a simple name, those became called the Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, but the idea was a pledge. So instead of coming to Paris and negotiating centrally all the commitments, countries would say, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to try. We don't know what's feasible, what's not feasible, but here's our pledge. 
And the United States made a pledge, China made a pledge, India made a pledge, almost everybody made a pledge. I don't think the North Koreans made a pledge. They're busy doing other things right now. But this bottom-up process is part of the reason why people are excited about, the, about Paris, because um, although it's a difficult, messy process, it's a process that is likely to stay better connected to what countries are willing and able to do. So that's the first thing I want to say, which is in terms of, of the design of international institutions, this is really new. Uh, it took us a long time to get there. It struck me as kind of obvious that we should have gotten there in the early 1990s, and I'll talk more about that at the end. But now, finally, we're there after 21 of these, uh, of these cops. And the reason I went to Paris is because I wanted to see this process, and I wanted to see what was actually uh, happening on the ground. The second of the three things I want to talk a little bit about is, a, is about the role of clubs or groups small groups of countries, because part of the French strategy and part of the strategy that comes out of basic international cooperation theory is that if you've got a hard, complex problem where even if countries are acting in good faith, they don't know exactly what they can do, that working in a big group of 180 or 200 countries is, is not going to be effective. It's too complex. You've got to work in smaller groups. And so part of what the French government did brilliantly is they took that logic and they embedded that logic into an agreement that applies to all countries. So all countries are there. Think of the Paris Accord as a, as a kind of umbrella. But then under that umbrella, they're free to go off and work in smaller groups. And actually, most of the progress in the months leading to progress came not from the big negotiations, but from the small groups. And in particular, I want to call out, we used to call these small groups coalitions of the willing, and then that got used for another event, didn't work out so well, and so we call them clubs or groups, and small groups. Um, the, the, the group that I want to call out in particular is the relationship with the United States and China. The agreement that was signed in November of 2014 between the United States and China marked a, a way station in a process that's been developing over many years, whereby these two countries are both number one and number two in terms of emissions, and they also have the largest potential impact on the design of international cooperation uh, in this area. And interestingly enough, both these countries are deeply suspicious of the centralized top-down process. They want something that's more flexible. They want something that they can better tailor to their individual uh, needs. And so that bilateral relationship, the G2 relationship between the United States and China, really determined a huge amount of the direction and shape of, um, of the Paris process. And I think it's a real testimony to the French government that the French designed a process that created room for lots of small groups within this larger umbrella. And when you look closely, when you think about that and you apply that lens to what's happening, what you start to see is small groups everywhere. You have the United States and China. You have Norway has led in a tremendous effort to provide funding to countries, Brazil, Indonesia, and now several others, who are reducing deforestation. Actually, this is the most important bright spot right now. You look at groups of countries working not just on all the different pollutants, but, but smaller numbers of pollutants, in particular an area where Ramanathan and I have been doing a lot of work together on soot emissions. Um, soot is, uh, is politically a beautiful pollutant. And the reason it's a beautiful pollutant is because it causes lots of harm to people immediately, which means that even if people can't get their head around the idea that the slow buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over many decades or generations is going to cause harm to them eventually or their children eventually in some other country, they do get the idea about soot and local air pollution. So the politics of controlling these shorter-lived pollutants that have more noxious immediate impacts, the politics are easier to manage. It doesn't mean you can stop global warming by working on this, but if you think the biggest problem we've had over the last 20 years is building credibility in the international institutions that we're actually making progress on these kinds of problems, uh, that, that working on these short-lived pollutants is an area where you can start to build that credibility. So you have all these different groups on certain pollutants, certain different geographical groupings, and so on, and that has been a, a tremendous source of energy and success. I just want to call out the Chinese in particular. There's probably no single country that has done more over the last four to five years to change its rhetoric and its engagement with the international negotiations in a way 
that has actually made it much more comfortable for lots of emerging economies to now become involved in this process. The Chinese are not comfortable as a diplomatic strategy in being in that kind of spotlight, but they played a major role. It's one of the reasons why I think this is actually one of the big wild cards going forward is what's going to happen internally inside China. Because when I look inside China, what I see is a country that's led by people who are struggling with their grip on power. And that, as a general rule, doesn't lead people to invest in long-term global public goods. But that's an area of some uncertainty and anxiety about the future. The third and the last thing I want to talk about, I would talk so far a little bit about why Paris was different from Copenhagen and some of the positive elements of that. I've talked a little bit about working in small groups and not just big groups. Last thing I want to say is about what remains to be done. I am cautiously very optimistic about the Paris process. And that is hard for me to say, because the last book I wrote was called Global Warming Gridlock. The book I wrote before that was called Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols. There's not been like a theme of optimism <laughs> in, my, in my writings in this area. I'm cautiously very optimistic. But I just want to underscore that the way we got to zero brackets, to no disagreements finally in Paris, is by agreeing not to talk about the things that are really, really difficult to get agreement on. And now those are still on the agenda. In fact, if you look at the final decision in Paris, about one-third of it is the Paris agreement with the flowery language and so on, and two-thirds of it is the action plan of all the things that haven't been done. Um, so, for example, what they created in Paris with these pledges is what international relations people sometimes call a pledge and review system. Countries make pledges, and then they come back after a few years, they review what's happened, they ratchet, they adjust their commitments, they learn what, they've, what they're able to do, they learn what they can't do, they make changes, they go back, they talk to other countries, and then cooperation emerges bottom-up. It's the way most of the international negotiations on trade have operated very effectively in this way. Well, we've created a pledge and review system. The problem is we've, we've got pledges, most of which were like a graduate student facing a term paper deadline. They arrived at the last moment. Um, and there's no review mechanism. So the review mechanism needs to be created. And a whole series of other things need to be created in order to bring Paris kind of fully into effect. I'm concerned that um, we now have no conspicuous deadlines, no world leaders showing up on somebody's doorstep, no government who's uh, devoted their entire foreign ministry, basically, to working the problem. <clears throat> and that concerns me. And it should concern all of us, not to the point of kind of inaction, but it means this is an area where people in the university and academia can do practical work on how, um, how to make the post-Paris process actually effective. And by closing, I just want to say, we brought with us a bunch of students to Paris. And to me, that was the most interesting part of the process, because many students, they do research. They say, you know, we've learned from our research that two degrees of global warming is really dangerous, or it should be well under two degrees, or people should do this, they should protect the oceans, whatever. And then you go to these negotiations and you see firsthand why it's hard. And it builds an appreciation for how are we going to develop strategies to, to manage, to engineer, if you like, those political barriers to make progress. And I think what you're going to see in the coming years is progress being made in small groups, in decentralized ways, and that that's how international cooperation is actually going to unfold. I think the bad news on that, the good news in it is that we're now finally getting something done, albeit 25 years after these negotiations began. The bad news in that is that we've locked in a lot of warming, a lot of climate change um, that's inevitable. And I think that's why, among other things, it's very important what Scripps is now doing to build up research on what are the likely impacts, how would we anticipate them, how would we manage them. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. One of the things that makes me optimistic as well uh, about this bottom-up process is that I see it happening in this country, too. And if you think about here in San Diego, our climate action plan, uh, other areas where uh, the four-county compact in South Florida uh, for addressing climate change, all over we see evidence of these clubs, if you will. And uh, regardless, uh, in the same way that uh, the cops were found it very difficult to negotiate at a 
uh, a top-down way. We're finding that difficult in the U.S., but maybe we'll take a lesson from the Paris Agreement and uh, accept what is already happening. So now I'd like to uh, turn to one of our graduate students at Scripps Oceanography, Caitlin Lauder, who is a PhD student who studies the impact of ocean acidification on organisms in the ocean. And she and her fellow students were very important at Paris. Uh, we have been sending graduate students to Paris, or to, to the COPS, uh, since 2001 with the great support from many people in this room. And what I want to highlight is something that you haven't heard yet. So these lectures are Perspectives on Ocean Science, and we're Scripps Institution of Oceans, Oceanography. And all of you who have been coming to these talks for a long time know that the ocean plays a major role in climate, and the ocean is being impacted by climate. So it may come as a surprise to you to hear that before Paris, the word ocean was never in any of the agreements. Hmm, yes. And uh, our group of students went with the goal of getting oceans into the agreement. And in particular, they worked with Scripps faculty, our partners in what was called the Ocean Climate Platform, a group of uh, of uh, organizations that were that understood this and understood that we have to work to get oceans into the agreement, and uh, she's going to tell you a bit about her experience uh, at COP21 and the issue of oceans. Caitlin. Good evening, everyone. I'm very excited to be representing all of the students that attended COP21, uh, all with the support of many people here in the audience. We really appreciate the chance to get all those experiences. Um, behind me is one of the tangible uh, examples of our support, um, with the thanks of the Engels and Keep Cool for Kids, which is a local organization. We were able to take posters that were drawn by local elementary school students, bring them to Paris, and then present them to members of the State Department, as well as scientists from NASA and NOAA. Um, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So there are seven of us students, uh, Yasir, Mariella, Matt, Weijay, Kirk, Natalia, and myself, that were able to put aside our work, um, our computer models, our experiments, our writing, and head to Paris in December as part of the UC Ravel delegation. And all of us do different things in different fields. Matt works in Antarctica, and Wei Jay works in uh, studying Africa, Northern Africa. But one thing unites us all. As graduate students, we can step outside, and we can see the oceans and be reminded of the important role it plays in our climate system and how it's affected and how that subsequently affects us. But the delegates themselves from around the world may not get this daily reminder every day. And as Margaret mentioned, the oceans haven't actually been included in any of the agreements before. So not in the Kyoto Protocol that was uh, created about 20 years ago. But that began to change um, a couple of COPs uh, ago. So there's some students uh, that were here that were attending in COP19 in Poland and then COP20. And around this time is when the Ocean and Climate Platform uh, really began. And this is a... An, a conglomeration of scientific entities as well as other entities that are all working together to make sure that our oceans are remembered. So we knew it was very important to make sure that the word oceans was included in this Paris Agreement and make sure that it was remembered that the oceans do play an important role in taking up carbon dioxide and heat and they also provide food for millions and their beautiful vista right outside. It's a little bit dark right now, but... Um, so we did this in various ways, and I can't possibly talk about all of them, but there are a few I want to highlight uh, that were key in our success. Our international collaborations were very important for making sure that the oceans were included. And this is a fantastic example. It's a special event that was put on in the area where negotiators are able to come and see these talks. And it was both uh, policymakers and scientists. So Margaret herself moderated. We have Lisa Levin from Scripps, Carol Turley from the Plymouth Marine Lab in the UK, uh, Hans Portner from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany, and then two other very special guests. 
Anna Maria Gutierrez, the Environmental Advisor in Easter Island, and Ambassador Waldemar Kutz, Director of Environmental and Maritime Affairs in Chile. So I wasn't able to attend the first week of the talks, but I did talk to Kirk, who's another student, about what he thought of this very special event. And he says it was cool that people from various vulnerable ocean countries were excited to see the ocean scientists partner with the Chilean ambassador to recognize the ocean's role in mitigating climate change. The event helped strengthen this partnership, and we hope that this momentum will continue in 2016 and beyond. So clearly, it's very important that these scientists are partnering with policymakers and putting on events like this in the future. Now, some of the students got to give a talk the following week. Uh, Yasir, Natalia, myself, and Matt. We were at the U.S. Center, or the U.S. Pavilion. So this is part of a giant airplane hangar where it's broken up into blocks and all the countries get their own area. And so they can talk about... Uh, their culture, they may talk about what they're doing to cut carbon emissions, or they may focus on the science. And the U.S. Center was very much focused on science. They had some great visualizations there, and scientists from NOAA and NASA giving talks. And we were very lucky to be able to give our talk ourselves in the same spot that the head of the EPA had given speeches, or the governors of California and Washington were able to talk. So we discussed our science here at Scripps, what we do as graduate students, and how the policy really plays a role. But I think one of the most uh, important parts of that was being able to answer the audience questions afterwards, the international questions that, focused, that made sure that we were able to take the research that we're doing and really focus it on an international perspective. And that was really valuable, uh, especially as a beginning scientist. But one of my favorite parts of COP21 was working at this booth, the Oceans of Opportunity booth uh, called Hot, Sour, and Breathless, which describes what we're going to see in our future oceans, so increased acidity, increased temperature, and decreased oxygen. This was also an international collaboration, again with Carol Turley and her colleagues from the Plymouth Marine Lab, and a group called Bioacid from Germany, which also studies ocean acidification, like myself. So we prepared with lots of handouts and materials and special flash drives for people from countries who didn't have internet access. And of course, us students who are ready to share our stories of what our future oceans would look like. And we did this over and over and over. I, the first morning, um, I lost count of how many people from different countries I had talked to. It was thrilling. Um, and Natalia was able to connect with negotiators. And if they were interested in keeping the ocean, she was able to get their contact information and keep them apprised of the developments that were going on at that moment. So I expected to be sharing our stories of the ocean. But what I didn't expect during this was that I would receive stories back from people I talked to. And the one that is the most memorable was from a Swede who walked by. And he told us he was a delegate from the nation of Tuvalu, which is a group of islands between Hawaii and Australia. And the highest part of those islands is just 15 feet above sea level. So he explained that he had been doing field work um, there and was asked to become a delegate to uh, stand in and make sure that his country was being, or this country was being included. So he began talking about sea level rise and how if the negotiators at the Paris Agreement don't make uh, certain cuts, then in future decades, these people won't have an island and they won't have a country anymore. And that was very striking. And furthermore, uh, the marine life in this area, they don't have any incentive to protect it in the future um, from overfishing and uh, coral reef degradation. But then again, began talking about something that I hadn't heard of before, which is a new brand of tourism. So people are flying into this country to see these people as the last of their generation before they have to disband. And I can't imagine what it's like to be watching people fly and emit carbon to come see you who are in this predicament because of carbon emissions. So <laughs> stories like this, I think, are one of the main bits we get out of the uh, cops besides an agreement like this. We get to discuss and understand where each other is coming from and gain these stories back. And we can, I can bring this story back to California where we may not be seeing sea level uh, as striking as that, but it's important to keep in mind. So what was the result of all of our hard work and making sure the oceans were included? Uh, it was like riding a wave, getting to the crest of excitement, and then getting thrown into the trough because the oceans were in the agreement, and then they were out, and then they're back in, but in a way that showed that they're still being debated. So Matt and I were actually on a flight home as the Paris Agreement was being announced a day later, 
And we were on our phone watching the live stream as the plane door was shutting. <laughs> so I never think I wanted a flight to be delayed, but that day I definitely did. There's that extra suspense. But once the agreement was announced, the word oceans was included in it. And it says, uh, noting the importance of ensuring the integrity of all ecosystems, including oceans, and the protection of biodiversity, recognized by some cultures as Mother Earth, when taking action to address climate change. So this is only one word in the agreement. However, that one word is super important because it's in an environment where debating shall versus should in one instance can go on for three hours, as Marielle witnessed herself. I and mean, as a marine biologist, it's very important uh, for me to see that the life in our Earths is being recognized as a diverse amount of life. Sorry, life in our oceans is being recognized. Um, but this is still leaving out something very important, that our oceans are helping our climate system by taking up carbon dioxide and heat, and it doesn't address what would happen if that capacity changes in the future or what changes in pH or um, temperature mean for our future ocean life. And so these are definitely topics for discussions in our future COPs, including next year in Morocco, and Scripps will definitely be there to be leading those discussions. So now I'd like to talk about what it was like to be a student um, at an event like this. A couple of us got together a few weeks ago, of course, looking, overlooking the ocean and talked about these different events we um, witnessed. But then we also began talking about the fantastic experiences and meetings uh, we got to see. So one of the most validating for me was actually meeting Gina McCarthy, who is the head of the EPA, in a student panel. And she had us go around and talk about uh, what we do. And it turns out that Natalia and I were the only two PhD science students there. And when this picture was taken, she actually turned around and came up to both of us and grabbed my arm and said, thank you for the fantastic work you're doing here as scientists. And that means a lot when you're in a sea of policymakers to know that you're welcome in these conversations too. We got to uh, meet the leaders of the Ocean and Climate Platform. Francoise right here is working on connecting all of us students, international students, so in future meetings we get to lead our own sessions. And then what was super awesome for me as a scientist was meeting Jean-Pierre Gattuso, who's a leader in the ocean acidification field. I have his textbook on my desk, and I read all his papers. And here I got to rub shoulders with him as we were working the booth. We also got to understand a lot of the policy much better uh, with meeting Governor Jerry Brown and then talking with John O'Niles from UCSD. Uh, we got to learn how the agreement is formed, what different words in the agreement mean, and how the different giraffes make a difference. And as graduate students, it's very important to learn what this policy means early on because we're still in the initial stages and we get to understand how to begin to incorporating it, whether we're just making our results more accessible or actually continuing to go into these meetings and help translating that science into policy. And as we're sitting there over the ocean talking, it really, I think, sank in the amazingness of getting to go to a meeting like this uh, this is a piece of history, and we were there for it. Thank you all. Thank you for being here tonight and your interest. Uh, thank you for listening to my stories, and now I hope you have some of your own to pass on. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.